0: I still remember at one point I, I kind of told her, like, my parents just don't want me. And she just couldn't believe that. And so she called my dad and, and I sat there and he's dropped from the stairs as my dad told her, I don't want him. He's caused all these problems. He's the reason why my marriage fell apart. And if you want him, you can have him." And I had to sit there and listen to my dad give up on me. And I think at that moment she realized I can't just Turn my back on the situation.
1: This is the Foster Movement Podcast, helping you work with others to provide more than enough for kids and families in foster care where you live. Here are your hosts, Jason Weber and Diego Fuller. Hey, this is Jason Weber. Welcome to the Foster Movement Podcast. I'm here with Diego Fuller. Hey, what's up, Jason? How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Diego? I am blessed. I'm doing good. So, Diego, you and I are both dads. Uh Uh-huh. And we understand that there are times when our kids are about to do something dangerous. Right. Or about to do something stupid. Right. (laughs) And when we we see that about to happen, Uh we got no choice. You right. got to step in. Got to step in. You got to yeah. get in the way. Mm-hmm. No matter what. No matter what. That's right. You got to be like Flash. Like Flash, Just get up in there. <laughs> are, you, are you a Flash fan? Oh man, I'm a big fan of Flash. Love it. Man. I love the Flash. You watch it? Oh yeah. Oh man, it's, one, tell- of, it's one of the. I'm not gonna tell you anything. <laughs> Don't tell me anything.
2: I'm in the middle <laughs> of it. But it's it's a great it's a great series. Oh yeah, nice. you're
1: right. He like. Once he sees something's going on, he's got to intervene. He's got to right. get in there. Most definitely got to. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what today is all about, mm-hmm. is we're going to hear from uh, Kevin Buker mm-hmm. and his story is amazing. And one of the things that I love about this story is that there's a woman in this story right. that saw Kevin's situation, and she just couldn't turn away. Intervene. She's got in there. So that's what today's podcast is all about is what do you do when you're confronted with something and you've got to do something about it right right. let's listen to this interview with kevin i'm here with kevin Buker in san antonio texas kevin thanks so much for sitting down and visiting with us yeah happy to be here so kevin tell us a little bit
0: about your story uh, yeah, I have kind of an, an interesting story. Um, I was born and raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, actually moved about 20 times in the first 21 years in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, so um, didn't have the most stable uh, environment growing up. Um, my, my parents were um, pretty abusive, had a, a dysfunctional marriage, uh, especially around the time of me getting into middle school. Um, around that time, um, physical violence became the norm in our house. Uh, my dad would leave for long stretches of time. Uh, my mom had battled some mental illness and would pretty regularly uh, take out her anger and frustration on um, her crumbling marriage and, and family on, on me, especially as the youngest child. So I was um, abused pretty badly. Um, physically, had a lot of broken bones, um, broken fingers, had been stabbed a few times. Um, had a belt put around my neck and dragged through the house even even waterboarded um, in the bathtub so uh, that 's a pretty pretty va- pretty violent um, childhood that I experienced now that 's a pretty horrific uh,
1: experience and and view from what was going on inside the home for people outside
0: the home looking in what would they have seen yeah it was it was interesting because um, both my parents work, they're both college educated, and so they um, kind of gave a, uh, a vision of, of there not being anything wrong in the home. You know, we had three cars in the driveway and a two-story house in kind of suburban neighborhood, and um, I think people thought we were a pretty high-functioning family, and so... Um, The the really difficult thing for me was was that a lot of my pleas for help went um, pretty unnoticed. On Multiple times I would um, talk to people at school that never really did anything. Um, I had made calls out to 911 during some of the abuse and police would show up and then leave our home without um, really doing anything or getting involved. So all of this came to a head at a certain point when you were Kicked out of the home, right? Um, it was when it got really bad, or, or went from bad to worse. I guess at that point. So at that point, I had been um, placed into a couple of psychiatric hospitals in Dallas and in Arlington. Um, when I came out, it was it was typically the same scenario. My dad would pick me up, drop me back off at my mom's house. He would leave, um, and then she didn't really want me, and we'd continue this, you know, back and forth. Um, Eventually I started getting arrested as well. Ended up in juvenile detention center in Fort Worth um, on three separate occasions as well. And so um, each time kind of staying there the maximum amount of time that I could, dad would pick me up, drop me off my mom's house, leave. And then it would just kind of start over again until the third time where she just said, get out. (laughs) And I said, gladly. And so at that point I was homeless So I would wander around my neighborhood. Um, The first couple of weeks would routinely sleep in the neighborhood park. Um, There was a little tube slide in the park that I could stay in. Um, Nobody could really see me. Um, If there were people playing basketball around the park, I would go to um, this little drainage, you know, area and and, and stay there. Um, And so I was always just kind of around the neighborhood. And I think people knew something was wrong, but nobody really knew what to do um, until this this kid named omar um, would kind of invite me over to his house and so we'd play basketball and we'd go over to his house and and that ended up being the house that i would go to live at um at that point and that's really where my story started to change for the better
1: a friend at 13? 13, 13. At 13 years old, and a friend named Omar comes and he invites you to his house. How did that work? Like, how did that work with his parents?
0: Yeah, it was, it was interesting because his mom was a single mom and she worked a lot to provide for the family. And so it was kind of an ideal situation for me because I had other friends that I would go to their house and eat a sandwich, but then I had to be gone by five o'clock when their parents would come home from work. But in Omar's case, um, because his mom would work in the evenings as well, I could stay there all night and didn't have to answer questions from an adult About what was going on And so I, I stayed there for a while And But eventually his mom did Obviously wonder why I never leave <laughs> And um, would ask Questions and so I, I still remember at one point I, I kind of told her like My parents just don't want me um, And she just couldn't believe that like She had no comprehension of, of, of that being Possible and so she called My dad and, and I sat there and eavesdropped From the stairs as my dad Told her I don't want him you know, he's caused all these problems. He's the reason why my marriage fell apart. And um, if you want him, you can have him. And I had to sit there and listen to my dad um, talk on the couch with this woman and give up on me. And I think at that moment she realized, um, I can't just turn my back on the situation.
1: Do you remember the feeling you had when you overheard that conversation?
0: I think hearing that conversation was the first time that I, I had started to feel something other than anger. Um, and it was, it was more of just a deep sadness, realizing that I'm not wanted um, anymore. And I realized that um, at that moment, my dad wasn't ever going to be the dad that I wanted him to be. Um, I had already kind of known that about my mother. My mother was the primary abuser of me as a child. Um, but there was a great deal of loss At that moment. And so I I didn't, at the time, really know how to process all that. But I think over the years I've realized that um, that was kind of the day I realized that um, I felt like an orphan. I I wasn't wanted any longer.
1: So. So Omar's family, they took you in? Yes. And you stayed with them for how long?
0: I was with them um, pretty regularly and through my my junior year. Actually, December 10th of my junior year of high school, I remember I moved out. Um, I had felt a tremendous amount of guilt um, that they didn't need to take care of me, um, mixed with some um, teenage male pride that I can take care of myself. And it started a, a period of, again, from from midway through my junior year of high school until I was probably 21 years old, where I I basically refused to ask for help. I was bound and determined to make it on my own, um, and so I I started to really push that family away and and, and push away a lot of people. Um, had a lot of fairly destructive relationships. Um, I didn't really have much guidance. Um, I didn't really know how to be loved. I didn't really know how to be accepted anywhere. And so I just kept trying to do things, um, my own way. And ultimately it kind of led me into a really dark place when I was, um, right around my 21st birthday where I was, I was back to kind of considering suicide and just wondering if I was ever going to make it in this world. Um, and just feeling a lot of the emotional toll of, of being so unwanted
1: so you said you experienced these things up until you were 21, these feelings, and then you get to 21 and you end up in this dark place. Right. Uh, but then things change.
0: Yeah, it was, it was interesting because, um, I had confided in a coworker that I was considering suicide and uh, my coworker told me that I should try this church and, um, I didn't really believe in church. I didn't really believe in God. Uh, The family that I lived with were were strong Christians, and they took me to church, and I had heard um, the gospel, and yet there was a great deal of bitterness in my heart that said, um, you're naive because you have a family that loves you. If you had experienced the things that I'd experienced, you wouldn't believe in a God because a just and loving God wouldn't do this to kids. And so there was, again, a a ton of anger um, in, in that But there was this desperation that um, there's something about this family that believes so strongly in this Jesus and this God, um, and they're the only ones that ever loved me. And so if I'm this desperate and I want to be loved, then maybe I should give this a shot. And so I, I ended up going to this church. It was Irving Bible Church. And I remember sitting in the seat one day and just crying my eyes out. And I just remember battling it out with God that day and saying, why was I so alone and why was my life ending up this way? And I still remember hearing God's voice tell me, I never left you because I was so afraid of being alone. And, and to hear God affirm that he never left me, um, it changed everything for me, uh, where I was reminded that I was actually never alone all those times that I thought I was, it, it put a fire in me to understand this relationship, to understand this Jesus. Um, and it, and it really kind of changed my course. Um, the, the, discipleship that I received at Irving Bible Church was amazing over a three or four year period where I was encouraged to get involved in youth ministry, shared my story and realized I could actually affect people positively. Um, that, that I had, uh, I had a story worth sharing that I, I wasn't going to live in anonymity forever, but that I actually had a chance to, um, to be influential in this world, um, because the fact that I was willing to share my story. And so, all of a sudden I realized there's a huge need here for people and advocates that will fight um, for kids that have been forgotten. And I felt like he was saying, I've equipped you to bring these kids into your home. Um, And so through a lot of prayer, my my wife and I decided to become foster parents uh, about a year and a half ago. So Kevin, as you've
1: foster parented this last year,
0: how has it helped you process your own experience? Um, yeah, there's no doubt that, that being on the other side has, um, has opened up some old wounds. Uh, I think emotionally it's been a little bit harder. Um, I think I have had distanced myself a lot from, from the past. And I think as far as my relationship with Christ, um, I never really understood Jesus' sacrifice at least not to the extent that I do now, um, especially when you have older kids and teenagers you know, in your home. Um, there's a lot of times that you can feel very unloved. Um, when you have children that are old enough to be aware of the circumstances um, and they're, they're old enough to see the investment that you make and the amount of energy and time and resources that you pour into them, and yet they still do unloving things, um, it can really make you question at your core why you're involved in foster care. And yet, when I think back on it, I look at it and see that um, I'm no better and I'm no different in the way that I relate to God. Right? You know, He sent His Son to die for us, the greatest sacrifice. And yet, we continue to live in sin. Uh, we continue to turn our back on on Him. We continue to um, not realize the sacrifice that was made. And yet, He's still there and He still loves us. And so, I've allowed that. Um, to change who I am and how I view relationships and how I view people um, from one that was very me-centric and would say, um, you know, transactionally, I'm in this relationship so that I get something from you um, to one that is more of a servant and saying, um, I really, truly want to be in this relationship to be a reflection of Christ to you, even if you don't deserve it, even if you've... Uh, push my buttons <laughs> and and that happens a lot um, I want these kids to know what that relationship with Christ means because um, that's the hope that they need Yeah, one of the things you shared with me earlier was
1: this idea of consistency and the power that has and I see it reflected in what you just talked about that uh, Christ came he came after us he pursues us But he's a constant presence. Um, Just what he spoke to you uh, in that church that day is that he's always been there. He's never left. You saw that from Omar's family. Uh, We don't see that kind of consistency, though, in a lot of kids that are in foster care. Um, Right. So talk about that a little bit.
0: For me, I, I truly believe that having that one family um, be consistent for me helped provide me value. Um, it, it helped me know that um, I am loved, that it's not a, a love that comes um, circumstantially, right? It's, it's not if you do this, then you're loved. It's just you're loved. And most of the kids that have come in our house, they don't really understand that right? It's a, I have to perform to be loved. I have to behave to be loved. And if I don't, then I'm gone. And that's heartbreaking because what if that's how God treated us? You know, that if we stop performing and we screw up that we're gone, um, that doesn't give us very much hope. Right. And so, um, I think you just you need time and you need consistency to learn that, to learn that you're allowed to make mistakes, that you're allowed to grow, um, and that you won't be abandoned because of it. When you can invest in the life of another person and you give them value, um, the opportunities are limitless. Because you can't do anything in this world without feeling like you have a purpose and a meaning. And for so many of these kids, it's been robbed away from them. Um, They don't feel loved by family. They don't feel loved by mentors or or don't feel worthy of anyone's investment. And so um, they don't feel like they were put here for a reason. And you drift through life that way. And I think you can get um, pulled away from what God intended for you if if you don't have – someone that shows you that value. And, and, and even more so than just showing you that value, it leads you to a relationship with Christ. Because I think when you have that, um, the other relationships can come and go a little bit. For me, again, I was in my 20s before I really started to grab hold of that. Uh, and almost 30 before I feel like I was cemented in that um, that, that I'm a child of God first and so I can finally start to let go of some of the anger and bitterness that I feel of being left and hurt by my own family, right? Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of kids and adults um, have never had that opportunity. They've never learned that. They've never um, been showed that by a, a tangible person with skin on. So they have no concept of what that would mean to be loved by Jesus, right? Um, if you have no comprehension of somebody that never left you, how can you believe that about Jesus, who's unseen, right? If you've never um, had your your needs met, how could you believe that Jesus can meet your needs? And so there's a very real way that we can be Christ-like and we can reflect Jesus in meeting the physical and, and, and tangible needs of our children so that they can understand that about Jesus as well.
1: So, Diego, I feel like Kevin makes just a a great point there at the end that Mm -hmm. we can't expect kids to understand things about God that maybe they've never seen modeled in anyone. Right. How do you expect somebody to believe something about the invisible they've never seen in the visible? Exactly. And, uh, you know, this woman uh, who became mom to Kevin who... Was confronted with this need right in front of her Mm -hmm. in her own home. Right. Uh, She just couldn't turn away. She had to do something. She had to. And that applies to so many of us in this space that there was somebody, there was some uh, child at some point or some situation that we came in encounter with. And there was some situation we encountered that we couldn't turn away from. right? And that's uh, the story of of this gentleman we're about to hear from, a good friend, Pastor Robert Jolanis from Colorado Community Church. Um, This is from a talk that he did at the National Foster Care Symposium in Oklahoma City uh, a few years back, and he talks about what happened when his church was confronted with the dire situation Mm -hmm. of hundreds of kids in foster care. Mm -hmm. A situation that he as a pastor and they as a congregation couldn't turn
2: away from. Let's listen. Pharaoh's daughter went to the Nile River to take a bath. I've always found that odd that she would go take a bath in the Nile River. Of all the places that she could have bathed, she chose that place. And what seems so odd about it is we know what her father did. It was her father who decided to have all of the Hebrew baby boys thrown in to the Nile River. And so she decides to go down by the riverside. She decides to immerse herself in the mess. She decides to go be there wondering. I think she had so many questions. Is there anything I can do? Is there something that my family can do? What if I could save some? What if I could save one? And she found herself a part of God's plan. Those are the kinds of questions my wife and I were asking some 20 years ago when we got married, and shortly after that made the decision to build our family through adoption. And so we had our first child, a daughter, uh, biologically, and then decided to grow our family through the foster care system. We, too, were uh, brokenhearted by the crisis in our country. We, too, were wondering, is there something that we could do we wondered if we could be a part of a child either uh, experiencing the beauty of reunification going back to their birth family or a new beginning in our family. And so we began to fill out the paperwork We began to take the classes, we got certified, and then one day we receive a phone call, little girl, you can come pick her up, and we did, and she became a part of our family, waited a few more months, received another phone call, little boy, you can come pick him up, and we did, waited a few more months, another phone call, a little boy, and we went and picked him up, two boys, two girls, we thought we were finished, and then through an odd set of circumstances, there came to our attention a seven-year-old girl in Ethiopia who also needed a home. And so we found ourselves planning for an international adoption, and yet it was taking so long, and we kept asking God, why is this taking so long? And then it dawned on us. How do you fly halfway around the world to a country with half a million orphans and only bring back one? And so we brought back two, and today we have six children, five adopted, and we have been forever transformed and changed. Psalm 68, our God is a father to the fatherless by placing the lonely in families. That the way God cares for the orphans of the world is by placing them in the extra room in our house, the extra seat in our minivans, the extra chair at our dinner table. Our God is a father to the fatherless by placing the lonely in our families. I remember hearing a wise woman say, We need to stop saying that they fell through the cracks. That we as Christians need to dispense of that language. And she says we need to be more honest that that they are not falling through the cracks, but rather what is happening is they are falling through the fingers of the bride of Christ. And she was so right. Because if God is a father to the fatherless, a father, he's a husband. If he's a husband, he has a bride. That bride then is the mother to the motherless. Who is God's bride but his church? Therefore, whose children are these but ours? The scriptures are clear. The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless cares for orphans in their distress. And so there came a moment in my life when I realized that, that caring for orphans wasn't just for my family, but it was something that God has called all of his family to. It doesn't matter um, if you're fostering or adopting or supporting someone who is, but all of God's people are called to live out uh, a life on, on behalf of the orphan. And so 10 years ago, I stood before my home church and I said, I've made a promise. On your behalf, I had gone to our lieutenant governor and I had told her that I had done the math that there were 875 children in the foster care system, 1,500 churches in the Denver metro area. If every church took one child, there'd be a waiting list of families, but not a waiting list of homes. And that began us coming to the riverside, us immersing ourselves in the water, and we realized we were not alone. There were many who had uh, joined uh, and gone into the river before us. There were many who would join us in the future. And we became a part of this movement that Jesus was bringing about in our state, a movement of dozens of churches and ministries joining and partnering with government on behalf of children. Ten years later, hundreds of children have found their forever family. And Colorado is a place where families are waiting for children. And we will work until Colorado is a place where there is a family waiting for every child because our God is a father to the fatherless. I'll never forget the day. It was a defining moment of my life. I was walking out of a social worker's office, and there was a trash can by the door, and I looked into the trash can, and there was a book, and I absolutely love books, and so I said, can I have that book? And she said, sure, you can have it. I'm not using it, so I reached into the trash can, and I grabbed that book, and I took it home, and, and later on, I began to thumb through its pages, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was a book about God's heart for orphans. It was a book about the church's role when it comes to caring for children in crisis. In this book, there was a chapter explaining all those verses in the Bible about God's heart for the least of these. There was there was a, a chapter explaining uh, James chapter one, verse 27, Isaiah chapter 58, Psalm 68. And what I had stumbled upon is this book that a social worker was reading to help educate her, herself as to what God says about his heart for orphans so that she could be ready to go knock on a church door and say, I have read your scriptures and we have your children. Something seemed backwards about that. It seems like it should have been the other way around. That this social worker, in addition to doing her job of uh, caring for children and, and working with uh, families of origin and working with foster families, was also trying to do my job. And so on that day, I knew something had to change. And on that day, it became clear the Church of Jesus Christ is enough for all of those infants, the cute ones that everybody wants. But the church of Jesus Christ is also enough for those adolescents who have grown up and strong but wonder if anybody will love them with their weaknesses. The church of Jesus Christ is enough for all of those sibling sets who wonder if they are just too much work and hassle. The church of Jesus Christ is enough for all of the special needs children who wonder if anybody will take them as they are. The church of Jesus Christ is enough because God is enough, because the God we love and serve is a father to the fatherless.
1: Diego Pastor Jelanis walked out of that social worker's office that day Mm -hmm. and knew that something had to change
2: that day. Wow.
1: And isn't that true for so many of us? We know, we're facing situations right now, there are people listening to this podcast and they're trying to figure out a certain situation, they're faced with something, they don't know what to do. Right. But they know something has to be done. Right. And so, you know, we want to end this podcast and I I just want to pray for people uh, who are out there who are feeling like that right now. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every person listening to this podcast right now. Many of whom are faced with a, a need, a challenge, and they know they can't turn away, but they're not sure how to move forward. I pray that you give them strength and help them to face it well. Yes, help God. them face it with courage. Yes, God. And help them to face it knowing that you are in control. Yes, Lord. And that you love them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Well, we want to thank our guests, Kevin Bucher and Pastor Robert Jelanis from Colorado Community Church, and we want to thank you for joining us. We really want to hear from you. Do us a favor, leave us a review on iTunes, that helps others to find out about us, and then come find us on Facebook at the Foster Movement Podcast page and respond to our big important question this week, otherwise known as our Big IQ. Right. (laughs) Our big important question this week is, what was a time when you were confronted with something, and you knew you just couldn't turn away. Mm. Tell them about a time when you were confronted with something and you just couldn't turn away. Be sure to add the hashtag Foster Movement Podcast. To get today's show notes, just go to fostermovementpodcast.org. Thanks for all you do to speak up for kids and families in foster care. We're here to help you do that. Yes. Until there's more than enough. Have a blessed day.
2: This has been the Foster Movement
1: Podcast. Join Jason Weber and Diego Fuller next time as they and their guests help you work with others to provide more than enough for kids and families in foster care where you live. Hey, this is Jason and Diego again. Yes, and we're still here because there's a couple of things that we want you guys to know. That's right. First of all, be sure to download the free PDF we created, especially for listeners of this podcast. It's called Key Things Former Foster Youth Want You to Understand About Caring for Current Foster Youth. This thing is beautiful and full of wisdom and insight from those who've been there. And I'm telling you, you need to print these babies out and give them to foster parents and applicants you work with because these things are amazing. Just go to morethanenoughtogether.org backslash free download. That's morethanenoughtogether.org backslash free download. Also, as you know... The Foster Movement Podcast is a limited series of just 18 episodes. But listen, it's okay. Don't be sad. Here's why. Because there's more where that came from. Tell them, Jay. That's right. More Than Enough has produced a whole family of podcasts, one of which is called the More Than Enough Podcast. So to learn more, go to morethanenoughtogether.org and click on the podcast link at the top of the homepage, and they are all there. Hey, and one last thing. Thank you for listening. It's a privilege to be a part of your journey. Our team is here to help you work with others in your community to provide for children and families before, during, and beyond foster care until there's more than enough.